Right, uh, so if you haven't gathered already by my opening prayer, we are beginning a short study today on worship. Um, I have laid out uh, seven classes, um, but my guess is that's going to grow, and that's okay because I haven't decided what we're, what we're doing after we talk about worship. So we're just going to take our time uh, if we have to, and as long as the, uh, the conversation is good, we'll just keep it going. But let me give you a little bit of a background uh, as to why we're studying worship. My, my wife said, well, it should be easy and quick to teach on worship after having gone through so much of 1 Corinthians where we're talking about worship and talking about spiritual gifts and talking about uh, all of these sorts of things. But last year, about this time in January, um, the session decided that we would study worship together, corporate gathered worship, and, and what we do and, and what we're meant to do, what God says we ought to do in worship, and all these sorts of things. Um, and that would be sort of our study for the whole year, and we did. So every week, or rather every month, when the session got together, we uh, had prepared by reading uh, a chapter or two of a book called Give Praise to God, which is a nice uh, book on worship. Uh, it's sort of a collection of articles from different authors, uh, and it's, it's really a, Steve Barry used the word, fetch script. Uh, it, they're essays in honor of James Montgomery Boyce and, and his legacy of Reformed worship. Uh, but it covers all sorts of different aspects of worship, regulative principle and singing and, and psalms and hymns and preaching and, and the order of liturgy and, and just different styles of worship, all sorts of good things uh, for discussion. And so we every week or every month, rather, we would come together having read a little bit, and we'd have a good discussion. And the goal was always that we were studying throughout the year, but we wanted to start this year with a class together so uh, that you would get a little bit of what we have learned together. And we're also using this as a way to evaluate our own worship order, our liturgy. Um, not intentionally going into it saying, here's some things we want to change, and so here's what we're going to do, but, but rather taking some time to reevaluate. Uh, as far as I know, our order of service has been the same since the church was founded, or at least relatively the same since the church was founded about 26 years ago. That's not a bad thing. Uh, you know, we, we stand on a great history of people before us uh, with unchanged forms of worship for centuries. So we're not, you know, we don't have itchy feet. We're, we're not thinking, hey, we've got to change something. Uh, but it's good every once in a while to stop and evaluate what we're doing, see if what we're doing accords with what God says we ought to be doing, uh, and if there's any way that we can improve uh, to do that. And so I, I would ask if you uh, would keep us in prayer, please do that. Uh, the session is going to meet together in the beginning of February uh, for our regular meeting, and that meeting is going to be devoted at least uh, largely in part uh, to thinking through our order of service and just talking through what have we learned and, and what have we taken away from our studies together, and is there anything that, that needs to change or would be good to change? For those of you that are just coming in, if you don't have a copy of the Trinity Hymnal, you want to grab one, uh, unless uh, you happen to have uh, the Westminster Confession uh, somewhere in a device or, yep, right there in the old noggin. Yep, Scott, great. We're going to reference it just a little bit. Uh, so that's where we're headed for at least the next few, uh, few weeks. Now, the other thing that we did and the other thing that we studied was the Westminster Directory for Public Worship. Uh, which is another document put together by the same assembly that gave us the Westminster Confession and the Shorter and Larger Catechisms. Uh, it's not a part of the confession or the, the, what's the word, the constitution of the PCA. 
It's an auxiliary document. So it, it informs us, but it, it's not something that, uh, that we are beholden to, in a sense, that when I became a pastor in the PCA, I had to take vows saying I would uphold uh, the confession and the catechism. Uh, but I, I didn't take any vows relating to the Directory of Public Worship. So it's not an official document of our church, but it is helpful, and it helps us to think through different ways of, of worshiping and, and what ought to be included in worship. So I have two goals for today, uh, is to answer two questions. My guess, knowing how I teach, uh, is that we're only going to get to the first one, um, but we'll do what we can, and, and we'll see if we can uh, press on further than that. So the two goals are to answer the questions, one, what is worship? How could we define it? Uh, how would we explain it to ourselves or to somebody else? Uh, what's the essence of worship? What's the purpose of worship? Where does it come from? Why should we do it? That sort of thing. So that's the first goal is what is worship? And then the second goal is how do we decide how to worship? Does God care how we worship? If so, what direction has he given to us so that we can know how to worship him correctly? So let's get started with that first of two goals, just thinking about what is worship. Here was a place where when I began to study these things and structure this class, uh, I kind of hit a wall. Um, th this question seems relatively simple. How would you explain worship? And, and in a little bit, I'll, I'll ask your thoughts on that and how you would define what worship is. Um, but it depends a lot on, on how we're thinking about these things and how we're defining these things. Um, sometimes we can think of worship as very broad. Uh, we had a study a few weeks ago on Romans chapter 12, and the opening uh, verse there tells us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, which is your reasonable service, or some translations say your spiritual worship. And the point of that class was talking about worship in all of life. Well, there's a sense in which worship ought to be what Christians do, what believers and people do, with everything that they do. There ought to be a sense that worship is so broad that it encompasses all that we are and think and do and, and say, uh, but we sometimes get into thinking about worship in much more narrow terms. Uh, think of the, uh, uh, the way many evangelical churches today divide the service. Well, you've got the worship time, and then you've got the everything else. And the worship time, sometimes we speak of that as just the singing. Right? So, okay, the, the worship is done, and, and now the pastor is going to stand up and preach. And so we can think of these things you know, as, as incredibly broad, or sometimes we can define them very narrowly. Uh, there's a difference in, in thinking of worship, whether it's planned or whether it's spontaneous. Uh, in just a little bit today, we're going to gather for corporate worship, which is what we do, and we have a bulletin that is printed, uh, and the order is ready, and we are planned, and, and we know... Uh, with some accuracy, we hope, what we're going to do together today and, and what worship is going to look like. And so that's planned. But one of the things that you find when you read in the scriptures is that worship is very often spontaneous. And it's the kind of thing that doesn't always just happen uh, when God's people gather together on the Lord's day, but it's something that sort of gets pulled out of people uh, because of what God is doing. We find this in Exodus chapter 4. It says uh, of the Israelites, after Moses had come back, it says, when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. That's spontaneous worship. And so uh, how do we think about these things? Matthew chapter 28, uh, the two Marys uh, have just heard the announcement from the angel that Jesus has been raised and they've been sent back 
to tell the other disciples all these wonderful things. And it says, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. We see this a lot in Scripture, that sometimes worship is a spontaneous thing, and so it's a difference in how we talk about these things and think about these things. Are we talking about a a planned service, or are we talking about sort of the the natural overflow of of the human heart in the presence of the Lord? Uh, There's also a difference sometimes in the way that we talk of worship as uh, private worship or corporate worship. And should there be a difference? If I can step up on a little soapbox here. Uh, the way that we talk about these things is, is really very important. Uh, and you see a shift in the language that we use for what the Reformers would have called private worship. Uh, and In a sense, not something entirely different from what we're all going to do together today in corporate worship as God's people join together and there's a, a call to worship and a benediction and everything in between those two elements. Uh, but the Reformers would have talked about uh, your daily Bible reading and, and those sorts of things as your private worship. It would have talked about the family gathering around for family worship, and now we don't use those terms. We have, we have quiet time uh, or we have devotions, which shifts the focus a little bit, doesn't it? It's not that we're, we're taking time out to worship this God who is worthy of worship, but we're ticking a box. Have you had your quiet time today? Oh, yes, I grabbed my cup of coffee. Uh, I sat by myself in a quiet room, and I prayed, and I read, and, and those are good things. Uh, but just thinking about the way that we, we speak of these things and the difference between corporate worship or private worship or family worship. So it can be hard to get a handle on, on how do we define this term. What is worship? It can also be hard to get a handle on this because the Bible itself doesn't really give us a hard systematic definition of worship. Worship just sort of shows up, Uh, and the Bible tells us an awful lot about worship. Uh, It regulates worship, tells us uh, what ought to be in worship. It tells us the difference between true and false worship. Uh, It shows us people worshiping, tells us about the acts that we ought to engage in, but there's no precise, clean definition. In most of our English Bibles, uh, the word worship, and this holds true if you're reading King James or the ESV and, and a host of others, the word worship shows up for the first time in Genesis chapter 22. Now, there are some worshiping things that happen. You think all the way back to Genesis 4 uh, and Cain and Abel each offering their, their sacrifices. Uh, that's certainly worship. That's, that's service to the Lord. But the word itself doesn't show up until the story of Abraham offering his son. And, it, and it's simply something that Abraham says to his servants. Genesis 22, verse 5 Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. It's just thrown in there. Just, yep, it's worship. Here's what it is. Here's what we're going to do. And and it's almost as though we're supposed to read this and instinctively understand, right, what we're talking about when we talk about worship. So the Bible doesn't give us uh, a clear definition in that sense. Oh, my, I thought I missed a page. I've got a blank one in there. Okay, okay. It's also difficult because our church standards don't do any better. Uh, When we talk about the confession, which is why I asked if you don't have one, make sure you have a copy of the the Trinity hymnal uh, or you've got the the confession handy. We're going to look at the confession in just a minute. In fact, why don't you go ahead, if you've got it in your Trinity hymnal, it's on page 860. The section titled, Of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day. 
But one of the things that we find as, as we consider the confessional documents, at least of our denomination, we have lots of other things defined. If you were to open your shorter catechism, you could find questions like, what is God? Okay, and there's at least a stab in the direction of defining who, what God is. Questions like, what is sin? What is justification? What is sanctification? And all of these other terms that are so important to what we believe and do, and they're defined. Uh, but there is no question in the catechism, what is worship? Again, it's almost assumed. So let's take a look at, at what the Westminster says. And I think this is close. This isn't a, a systematic definition of what worship is. Um, but it, it gets us moving in the right direction. Um, can I have somebody read that for us? Just that first section, uh, and in fact, really just the first sentence of the first section. So we're about halfway through. It says, the acceptable way of worship. Let's not get into that yet. Can I have somebody read that first sentence in the confession for us, please? Chris, go ahead. Thank you. Okay. So there's a stab in the direction of, of telling us what worship is about, but it's really more of a list than a definition. It includes some of the actions that we engage in, some of the attitudes of the heart that we engage in that are a part of worship. And again, it, it sort of assumes uh, that, that we know these things. Both the confessional standards and the Bible seem to assume worship. Um, now, I do think that this section in the Confession is really helpful. So keep that open. We're going we're gonna to come back to this and consider it in a little bit. I think it's helpful because it gives us, in a sense, all of the pieces that we need to put together to, to help us think through our own sort of definition of what worship is and how we would define it. And we're also going to look at a few scriptures that will help us to think about these things. Uh, but before we go any further, here's, here's the place for a little bit of audience interaction. If you were to tell uh, an unbelieving neighbor of yours, and they were going to ask you, well, what do you, what do you do every Sunday morning? Where do you go? And you say, well, I go to church. They say, well, what do you do there? Well, I, you know, we listen to a sermon. Uh, we sing some songs. We, we give some money. Uh, we worship. And I said, well, what is worship? How would you define it? How would you tell somebody else what worship is? Bill? Okay. So there is a good element, really, of what worship is, and it has to do with the character of the one whom we worship. Um, and here's one of the things that you'll find as you go throughout the scriptures, um, that, that we talk of worship sometimes as the things that we do, the acts of worship. We talk about the attitudes of the heart, and so sort of external and internal, but all of it is meaningless if we're worshiping the wrong thing or the wrong person. Uh, so worship, real worship, cannot be separated from who God is. Absolutely. So that's the first thing, one of the pieces that we want to have when we, when we try to put together a definition of worship. Steve, you look like you... Yeah, it's similar to Phil. You know, the old English, you say worship. Mm -hmm. Worship. 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 
Yeah, so it is a recognition, uh, not just of who God is, but what God is worthy of. Ascribe to the Lord all the earth. Ascribe to the Lord majesty that's due to his name. Yeah, this idea of, of worship, of uh, ascribing to, to God what is already duly his. Our, our worship, I said it in a, a sermon a couple weeks ago, our worship, our praise of God doesn't make God any bigger or better or different. It doesn't change the Lord, but it's, it's something that we do to acknowledge who he is and what he's done, and, it, and it's our reaction to that. Good. Good. Anybody else? Rob. Okay. Yeah, so, so there's an important element when we start to think about true, real worship. There are all sorts of false worship that mankind will initiate on his own, but real worship, real, true, biblical worship is a spiritual act that is initiated by God's Spirit, that he works uh, that he's the one, you, you said he calls us. We can look in scriptures and we can find all sorts of commands uh, to come and to worship the Lord. It's not something uh, that is just assumed. It is assumed in scripture, but it's also commanded. Uh, God doesn't let us off the hook. Um, that, that there is a positive command that we ought to be engaging in this. And it's God who promises to give his spirit to his people, in a sense, to make them able to worship in the way that he, he calls them to. Were you going to add to that? Yeah, good, good. Yeah, so here's, here's where we get really deep with Reformed theology of worship. Uh, and everybody knows, hopefully everybody knows, the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's, that's Westminster saying, what were we made for? What's the purpose of our being? What is the whole uh, you know, direction that we ought to be moving in? Well, it's to ascribe this glory to God. Uh, to have this recognition of who he is, to live and to worship and, and to act in such a way uh, that God's glory is magnified. Uh, and when we do that, that is the moment that we come to the pinnacle of our purpose. And we think of so many other things that occupy our time, so many other callings that we have in the world, whether you know, you're a mother at home with your kids, whether you're a husband going off to work, whether you're a child who's trying to do your schoolwork, whatever it is and whatever you're doing, and we think of all these other purposes that we could have, uh, Scripture seems to say, and I think that the Westminster stands on, on good founding there, that that really is the chief end. That's the, the main goal and purpose. Uh, it's, I don't have the quote on me because I thought it was too uh, long and laborious. Um, but John Calvin wrote a treatise on the necessity of reforming worship. You can look it up if you're so inclined later. Um, but he was writing to one of the uh, kings uh, in, in his time. And there's a quote where he says something like, and, and you'll have to forgive me for the paraphrase. He says, if we were to inquire how it is that 
Christian religion has its existence among us and in what things uh, it maintains its truth, right? So how does the Christian religion uh, maintain its truth and its standing uh, among people? He says, if we were to make that inquiry and were to ask that question, we would find two things that encompass all other aspects of Christian religion. And he listed first how God is to be worshipped and second how salvation is to be gathered or, or gained from the Lord. And again, this is a paraphrase, you'll have to forgive me. But he put them in that order. And for a particular reason. That Calvin's view was that, that all of the salvation that we speak so much about is God bringing us to himself so that we would worship him rightly. That salvation is a means to an end, and the end is worship of the Lord. Uh, John Piper says it differently. He says, missions exist because worship does not. Why do we go and proclaim the gospel? Why do we engage in evangelism? Because people are not worshiping the God they ought to worship. And our goal is not just to cross over seas and mountains and, and travel large areas to make a convert for ourselves, but our goal is to tell people about this God who exists and who deserves and is worth worshiping. Great. Good. Thank you. Anything else? Becky, you had your hand up. Did you? How would you define worship? Somebody asked you, Becky, what is worship? What would you tell them? Yeah, and here's an important aspect, um, that when we recognize who God is and recognize who we are, we recognize that we can't come to him and worship him rightly without somebody standing in between us. We need that mediator. And all of our worship of the Lord is enabled by the Spirit of Christ, and it flows through the person of Christ. Right? So he is, he is the one who stands between God and man. He is the one who bridges the infinite chasm between creator and creature. That we could never bridge on our own. We could never work our way up to where God is or, uh, or be on par with him or even in his presence. So you're adding, we're, we're talking about who Christ is and what he's done, and it centers around who Jesus is. Not the exclusion of the other persons of the Trinity. Uh, you'll find again... In, I'm, I'm useless if I don't have a text to work from, so forgive me for going back to the confession over and over and over again. I'll get you in just a minute. Um, you'll find in the confession, it'll, it'll speak of, um, oh, where was I going with this? Uh, that, that man can have no sense of, of blessedness and reward in God. It's on the, the chapter on covenant, without God's condescension. Uh, and, and the way the Lord condescends to his people is through covenant, and we see that the covenant, uh, the keeper of the covenant and the guarantor of the covenant is Jesus Christ. So he is the one who is initiating God's covenant mercies with a fallen people. And so it, it's through him and in him that all of our worship consists. But it also says, here's, here's where I was going, um, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all together uh, worthy of honor and glory, uh, that they are all the same. So we don't, we don't come and say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship Jesus, I'm not going to worship God the Father. No, no, our worship of God the Father goes through Jesus and it's empowered by the Spirit, but it's all going to one Godhead. Uh, there are not three gods and we don't choose one to worship, but it, there are particular channels here. 
Brian, what were you going to add to it? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, and that idea of, of God's value is infinite. A car is finite. If somebody were to present to you some jalopy and say, hey, pay me $300,000, no, that's not worth that. There is a point at which I will stop uh, and will not pay you more than the actual value of this thing. Uh, but when we recognize God's infinite transcendental value, this takes up the whole of our lives, which is what we were talking about a couple weeks ago in this idea of spiritual worship and, and all that we are and offering our whole selves and our whole lives. Good. Thank you. I like that. Jay. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Sure. And, but the, the, uh, the other side of the equation, then, if, if we're talking about God's infinite worth and value, there is no price that we could pay that is enough to match uh, who he is and what he is worth and, and what his worth. So, yeah, so that idea of value and that idea of worthship, yeah, this is really helpful. Good, good. So let's press on a little bit. I, I was putting together uh, a few pieces of sort of a working definition. What are the things that we need to keep in mind? And, and you've already brought up some of them. Um, and we'll come back to that other question. Um, so here are a few things that I think we need to keep in mind when we're thinking about worship and what it is. First, that it is something that we do by our nature. Rob, you mentioned this. This is the reason that we are uh, made, and it's how we exist. Um, and and well, it's, it's why we exist. R.C. Sproul's got this little book, um, uh, what is it? A Taste of Heaven. And his introduction is, is really nice. He talks about sitting and observing birds flying overhead, and, and everybody's had the situation or the sensation, wouldn't it be nice if I could fly like that? And we get in a plane, and it's different, and it's when you hear the noise, and, and you get from one place to another, but it must be different to, to fly, just to soar on the wing and the wind and, and just do that sort of thing, but that's not our nature. That's not what we do. Birds fly, fish swim, people worship. It's, it's who we are. That's the nature that we have. Uh, and this is contained in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, it's the whole reason for our being, right? So when we think about worship, uh, it really is meeting to this, this um, raison d'etre, the, the, the reason for being. Why, why are we who we are? Uh, well, because God has created us for worship. Um, the second thing that I think we need to, to keep in mind when we're thinking about worship, so it's, it's something according to nature, uh, it's also this reaction that recognizes God's character. And here's another part of, of our human nature, uh, that, that worship is something that's ignited by relationship. Uh, that it is, in a sense, our response, our acknowledgement of the relationship that we have with this eternal, uh, self-existent God who has made us. It's a recognition of, of who he is. Uh, it's not a coincidence that so often God's provision for worship with his people, involves the idea of closeness. 
that he is, in a sense, not content to let his people simply worship him from afar. That was the whole reason for uh, the the tabernacle, right? When when you think about uh, the reason that God uh, instituted the tabernacle and, and that whole drama that we studied a while ago when we went through Exodus, this idea that God was going to be with his people. And as a symbol of his being with his people, he gave them this tent and this tabernacle where he would dwell, and all through their marching, he would be right in the middle of the camp. And he'd put you know, three tribes on one side and three on the other and three in the north and three in the south, and God was right in the middle. And it was this idea that God was coming close, and he was going to dwell with his people. You see that in Jesus in the New Testament, that he's the one, uh, the beginning of John says he made his dwelling, he, literally he pitched his tent. God has come near to us to be where we are. And the purpose, he says in the end of John, in the Upper Room Discourse, so that he would bring us to where he is. When you look in Revelation, at the end, this this great uh, acknowledgement, now the kingdom of God is with men, and he will make his dwelling with them, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. And what do we see in, in the heavenly picture? We see worship everywhere. Because God is with his people, and there's a relationship, there's a closeness that happens there. Uh, worship is where we meet with God. Worship is what happens when God meets with us. Here's another quote from Calvin. This is a, uh, a comment on one of the Psalms. Calvin says, Let us know and be fully persuaded that wherever the faithful who worship him purely and in due form, according to the, port- the appointment of his word, wherever they are assembled together to engage in the solemn acts of religious worship, God is graciously present and presides in the midst of them. So it is an interaction, in a sense. Our our worship is certainly initiated by God, but it's the height of our nature, and it is what we do when we interact with God. We can't help but fall on our faces in worship uh, when we come into God's presence. Uh, Third, so something by nature, something a recognition of who God is, and this idea of relationship. Third, it involves the whole person. Uh, that we can sometimes think of worship acts. Uh, But those worship acts are false and are empty if they are separated from a worshiping spirit, a worshiping heart. Uh, It it is not so easy to separate those two things. And and what we'll see when we start looking at a few more passages of Scripture is that God takes his people to task and Jesus takes the Pharisees of his day to task when they tried to separate those two things. So when we think about worship, it's not enough to think about, was I in church today? Did I sit through the sermon? Did I keep from falling asleep during the sermon? Did I give my money? Did I sing the song? Did I do all the outward things? Uh, And did I tick the box? That's not real worship. At best, that's what Scripture calls false worship. It's what Scripture calls hypocrisy. So we can't divide these two things. Now, on the other hand, if your heart is really full of worship, it's going to show up in outward acts. It's going to show up in prayer. It's going to show up in praise. It's going to show up in, uh, in all sorts of other things that we can think about. Uh, and, and there's a sense in which, although it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't face condemnation in Scripture because it's just it's a one-two correlation. When God's people's hearts are full of worship, they do what, uh, what they did in, in Exodus that we read at the beginning. Moses shows up. God has come down. Wow, let's bow and worship, it, and it shows up. Uh, and, and we can't separate these two things. And thinking, well, I've got, I've got a heart of devotion. Uh, in, in a sense, that is uh, what uh, there's an error on the other side that 
that the contemporary evangelical church is now getting into, where we say, well, well, worship, corporate worship especially, it's good for you simply to go and sit on a beach somewhere and just be full of that sense of worship. Well, no, God commands certain acts that accompany that, that show the value, that show the worth, that, that express outwardly what uh, he has put into the hearts of his people. So it's a whole person thing. It, it's, it's our nature, it's this relationship, it's a whole person thing. Uh, and then uh, lastly, something else we need to keep in mind, like everything else that we do, uh, it is subject to degradation through sin. Oh man, uh, Midas had the golden touch and everything he touched turned to gold. And fallen humanity has the sinful touch. And everything we put our hands to turns into sin and brokenness if it is not redeemed and directed and led by the Lord. So we need to think of that even in the sense of worship, this idea that, that if God is not empowering our worship, if he's not in, working in us by his spirit, uh, it's, it's so much hypocrisy and, and falsehood. Now, with those things in mind and that discussion, let's turn back to the confession and read this section again because I think you're going to see some of these things that we've all been talking about. Excuse me, I've got something in my eye there. So here's what it says. The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and does good to all, and is therefore to be feared. Where does worship come from? From our nature. From a recognition of who God is from coming into contact with who God is and recognizing that and, and desiring to show forth the beauty and the majesty and the value of the Lord. It's not something, and this is why Scripture so often seems to take it as uh, a given that people will worship, uh, that it's just what we do. We assign value and we give ourselves to certain things and we worship and, you know, uh, Bob Dylan, uh, not Bob Dylan, um, is it Dylan? You've got to serve somebody. Yeah. Might be the devil, might be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. This idea that we, we will inevitably uh, be worshipers in some sense. Rob? Yeah, Chris. Yeah, so there's the corollary. Yeah, yeah, everybody hear that? So for God to not direct us to worship him, because he really is the highest good, for him to direct us or to be content for us to worship anything other than him would be God leading us into or allowing us to engage in idolatry. It's a matter of reality. It's not, it's not a matter of, well, well, God is really egocentric. Well, he is in a sense because his ego, his I, his person, is the most worthy thing of worship that exists 
All existence comes from him, and, and he, is, he is the source of all existence. And so why should not all existence worship him and glorify him? It's not egocentrism in a bad way, but it's, it's the truth of who God is, and anything less would be falsehood. Bill. Oh, okay. We haven't said much about fear mm. yet. Yeah. But it's not just heavy fear, it's moral yeah. imperative. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Bill, let's let's press on to that. So we've got this first section where we're seeing, yeah, it's something by nature, it's a recognition of who God is. And now we're we're going to see in the rest of this this whole person reaction. That it's not something that we can just divide into one tiny slice of who we are or what we do. Um, he doth good unto all and is therefore to be, it says, feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the might. Now that involves some things that are external. What are the external elements there? What are the things that you could point to and you could say, there it is? Praise, calling upon, anything else? Served, service shows up in outward acts. We talk of a worship service. Uh, those are things that you could point to and say. But there are also some hidden things of the heart, this idea of fear. And that's part of God's worth and his value. He's, he's the God who is to be feared. That's the beginning of wisdom. It also, according to the confession, and I think they've got it right, it's the beginning of worship, as Bill was pointing out, that you recognize first, you know, and, and to get to the idea of, of the liturgy, I knew we weren't going to get to my second question today. To get the idea of, of liturgy that we're thinking about, there is a certain drama to the liturgy, and there ought to be a drama to the liturgy when we come into worship. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, just the way that our current liturgy is set forth, there is an intentionality, the fact that we come in called into worship by God. Uh, we respond in praise of who he is. We go in prayer to adore him, and we go immediately into confessing our sin. It is this juxtaposition of the all-holy, all-perfect, all-glorious God and man who is this sinful, fallen creature. And when we see God as he is, as he's revealed himself, we can do nothing else but to loathe our sinfulness and to repent of it. And so this idea of, of wisdom begins with fear of the Lord. Worship begins with the fear of the Lord. But there are internal and external things here in play, and we can't divide them uh, into one or the other. So I think, really, the Westminster is giving us uh, all the pieces that we need to, to put together a pretty good definition of worship. We're going to see this also in the beginning of Romans. Take a look uh, in Romans chapter 1. And you don't have to keep your confessions open any longer. We're done with those. You can put those to the side. So all of a sudden, our seven-class series has become an eight-class series. Um, so Romans chapter 1. Can I get somebody to read verses 18 through 25 for us, please? Thank you, Tim. Go ahead. Romans 1, 18 to 25.
Thank you. Uh, so a few things you need to notice in this passage. Paul is just about to launch into the most full exposition of the gospel in the New Testament. Chapters, the rest of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11 is the gospel and its ramifications. Uh, and then chapters 12 and following, uh, as we saw a couple weeks ago, he starts to apply the gospel. It is no coincidence that in chapter 12, when he moves from gospel to gospel application, as we saw, that he talks about spiritual worship and being conformed to the image of God. And it's no coincidence that he begins here with the problem of false worship. Paul sets up all of the sin of mankind that he's going to talk about in the next few chapters as primarily a problem of worshiping the wrong thing. That's what he, he talks about here. The central verse, uh, verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Here again, we see that propensity for sinful twisting uh, and this wide-ranging effects of false worship, that false worship not only happens when sin gets in the way, but false worship leads to further sin. We heard in verses 24 and 25, therefore God gave them up. Why did he give them up? Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they did not worship him or serve him. And so he gave them up to further degradation. And it starts to talk about sexual immorality and all these things, but Paul traces it back to a problem of worship. All the craziness revolving around the sexual revolution and the, and the redefinition of all sorts of things in our culture is a problem of worship. That's what Paul would say. If you want to trace it back to its source, the problem is that man would rather worship the creature rather than the creator. And it all goes back to this problem of worship. Now, these verses are also important uh, because they, they contain the two primary ideas that lie behind the words that we find in Scripture of worship. <coughs> Excuse me, and I want to try and get through this uh, as quickly as possible. In the New Testament and in the Old Testament, there's sort of a cluster of words that are sometimes translated as worship. There are also individual worship practices like prayer, praise, and, and sacrifice, and all sorts of things that happen in worship. But when you open your Bible in the New or the Old Testament and you find the word worship, in, in the English, generally there is one of two ideas, even though in the New Testament there are like six different words that show up, but those six different words translate one of two central ideas, and they're both here uh, in this passage. Uh, the two ideas of worship, one is to bow down in, in reverence. The Greek word is proskuneo, and there's the Hebrew equivalent, uh, but that's one of the important ideas uh, of worship, to bow down, to pay homage, uh, to have a sort of posture of recognition of God's superiority. That's the first idea of worship. The second idea of worship is uh, to perform acts of devotion. So here we're seeing again this distinction between the internal and the external and the, the way that those things should always be together. Um, the Greek here is the word latreia, and this is actually where we get the word idolatry. It's serving, so this is the idea of, of acts of service, and the idea of idolatry is acts of devotion, serving an idol. It's also where we get our English word liturgy, uh, or the study of the liturgy, the worship service. And every church has a liturgy, whether it's high liturgy or low liturgy or, or any of these sorts of things. We all have a certain order that we do things and the way that we express all of these things. And you see this both in verse 25. 
Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped, they bowed down in reverence, and they served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, there's a a close parallel here. Uh, We won't go back and look at it, uh, but you can take a look at uh, the Ten Commandments later. The first four of which, by the way, are all about worship. Uh, And and God telling us uh, the ultimate object of worship and giving some rules for how we ought to worship. Uh, But the second commandment deals with idols. And there in the second commandment, he, he tells us we ought not to make an idol. And then he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the words are proskuneo and latreia. It's the same two ideas in their Hebrew equivalents. And so all throughout Scripture, if you start looking for these things, when you start looking for that combination of ideas in Psalms and in the direction we find in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you will find those two ideas together all the time. Uh, This is why in Romans 12 we had this distinction. Well, are we talking in Romans 12 about having our bodies conformed to God rather than transformed by God rather than conformed to the world? And, And we talked about some of our translations have your spiritual worship, or your reasonable service. Well, it's, it's worship and it's service. It's, it's acts of devotion. Um, and you're going to find these ideas everywhere. Uh, so, so what are those two ideas together, as you think about that? Worshiping and serving, and, and bowing down and serving. What does that help you to think about what worship is? How does that change your understanding of, of what worship ought to be? It's a broad question. What do you think? It's active. Yeah. Yep. Right. Right. Yeah, and, and so when we start to talk in the, uh, the intervening weeks about what are we doing um, when we come to church, and this is, this is why I think it's important, Uh, that we have, if we're following the sort of evangelical wind of the day, we have this idea that worship is just a a feeling. Uh, And the externals are not really all that important. They're important so far as they further the feeling, right? They're important so far as they help you to sense who God is and be in awe of who God is, and they certainly do that. But the externals themselves are also important. Not in a ritualistic way, not that we can separate them, uh, but, but let's not uh, elevate one to a place that it, that it ought not to have without the other. Good. Um, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting study. Uh, and I'll, I'll just give you this as we close. It's an interesting study to go through the Bible and to look at what false worship is all about. In fact, that's one of the best ways that you can learn about true worship is finding the ways that God calls out his people for worshiping falsely. Uh, There are three basic ways uh, that God uh, condemns false worship in the Bible. Uh, One of those ways is worshiping the wrong God, idolatry. We find that everywhere. I mean, read Ezekiel, and you will come away with uh, a sense that idolatry is this horrible, terrible evil. Read Jeremiah, read Isaiah, read the prophets. They will show you the, the falsehood and the terrible practice of worshiping the wrong God. There's also the problem of worshiping the right God in the wrong way. Uh, The prime example here is the golden calf. 
so uh, Moses is up on the mountain, uh, and the people are down below, and they get tired of waiting on Moses, and they tell Aaron, hey, give us these things, and he says to them, uh, here are your gods, O Israel, and that is sort of up for interpretation, does he mean, the, the word there is Elohim, and it could be that he's saying, here is the God, because God, that word in the Old Testament is always plural when he speaks of himself. Uh, is he saying, here is your God, the self-same God who led you out of Egypt, which is what he says. Here are your gods, here are the Elohim who led you out of Egypt. And that's a little bit up for interpretation. But the next thing he says uh, in verse 5 of Exodus 32, he says, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. He uses the divine name. So here are God's people worshiping the right God in completely the wrong way. And that's also a problem of false worship in the Bible. Uh, and then the last is this idea of worshiping without connecting uh, external service with a heart of reverence. And we can, we can go too far, uh, I think, in either of these directions as we've already seen. You know, it's, it's an interesting study to see the shift in false worship and the way that God condemns false worship in the Old Testament, specifically in the prophets, dealing largely with idolatry, to the problem of false worship in the New Testament that Jesus comes to deal with. In the Old Testament, when you read the prophets, the people are being threatened with exile because the land is full of idols. The prophets say, under every green tree, on every high hill, you've made your, your Asherah poles, you've sacrificed to Baal, you've burned your children to these false gods, you've done all these terrible despicable things, and, and it seems like you don't care about worshiping the one true God and him only. So the people go off to exile. They come back from exile, in a sense, a different people. Uh, worship looks different. The temple's no longer so central, and, and synagogue worship begins to increase. The worship begins to be more word-centered, uh, preaching and teaching in the synagogues and the rabbis. Uh, and by the time of the New Testament, uh, you've gone through a period that we don't hear much about and we don't hear anything about between the Old and the New Testament uh, where the Israelites would rather die than worship anyone other than Yahweh. You come to the Roman period where the Israelites were the only ones who were exempt from burning their little pinch of incense to Caesar because the Israelites, the Hebrews, would rather die than burn a pinch of incense. And it's this massive shift, right, to these people that on every high hill and under every green tree have given themselves to idolatry, to now these people in the New Testament uh, who uh, won't even burn incense to Caesar, just a little pinch, just, a, just some outward little thing, and you don't have to bow the heart, just bow the knee and just, just burn the pinch. Uh, and yet Jesus comes back and he rails against um, the, uh, the Pharisees. He actually quotes Isaiah, uh, Matthew chapter 15, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Uh, in vain do they worship me, teaching, the, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Here's where we're going to stop for today as we, we come back to think about uh, some of these other things in, in following weeks. Um, that We, we want to be really sure uh, that we've got firmly in our mind that worship is this whole person reaction to who God is. And that real worship is only, uh, in a sense, through Jesus and empowered by the Spirit. Uh, that we're going to talk about some of the external things. We're going to talk about uh, what kinds of songs ought we to sing in the church. We're going to talk about what is the role of prayer in the church. 
And before we start to talk about all those things and we get off base and we start thinking about, oh, we can get it right if we just get the externals, that's the wrong way to approach it. Uh, but it's, it's this idea that, that real worship is this whole person response. It's our nature. It's the highest thing that we do because God works in us and shows us himself. Scott? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you've got a heart for service, maybe you should uh, think about becoming an officer in the church. No, never mind. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So, so it is, and, and we do have to keep this balance. Um, there, you know, this, this balance between Romans 1, bowing down and serving and formal worship, and this balance between Romans 12 that we heard a couple weeks ago, this idea of being different from the world and serving the Lord in all things and being, uh, being directed by his word and his word alone. Absolutely. Thank you. Bill, did you want to? You want to get the last word? Yeah, absolutely. To give a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in His name uh, is service to the Lord. Folks, let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, thank you uh, for your gift of worship. Thank you that we were made to worship you. We find our uh, highest ambition and our highest good in worshiping you, and that happens as you work in us through your Spirit. Thank you for condescending in the person of Jesus. Thank you for giving us promises that we will rejoice in today and the hope of resurrection that means that we will be with you in whole people, whole bodies and spirits joined together, resurrected and perfected. We'll spend our time in eternity worshiping you in your very presence. Thank you, O Lord, for these things. We pray that as we come, Uh, and uh, we'll worship together. Oh, knit our hearts together in the gospel, we pray. Uh, Lift us up by your Spirit to see Christ where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, to feast on Christ by your Spirit at the table, to rejoice in Christ, and to go from this place, people who bow down and ascribe worth and, and value and glory to the King of Kings because you have met with us in worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, folks.